All right, let's turn now our attention to Hebrews chapter 5. If you found that, won't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Hebrews chapter 5, it's 10 verses. It's a little bit of a lengthy passage. There are two quotes from the Psalms in these 10 verses. Verses 1 through 5 start out with some background, and then the preacher turns his attention in verse 5 to say, Christ has fulfilled every one of these. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there in verse 1. <clears throat> this is what the preacher says. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ, he did, not exalt, he did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I pray in the name of Jesus you would speak to your people, strengthen our hearts. Help us to trust, genuinely trust, in the work of Christ. Help us to trust by grace in what you've done for us in Christ. Help us to rest in that. Father, help your people to have confidence in the work of Christ. So from your word, speak to your people by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Everybody in here feels the instability of the world we live in, the instability of society. Let me just speak. The, ins the instability of American society, the instability of society, even within our city, you already feel inflation. Things are so unbelievably expensive. My gas light is on right now. I'm avoiding it. We feel the absurdities in the world we live in. You can see it on the news. You probably see it on your social media. We see the absurdities. The absurdities even of the gender confusion that's going on in America. USA Today, USA Today, the woman of the year for USA Today is a man. The top female collegiate swimmer is a man. 
And we've been asked to look at that and believe it. Our eyes are not deceiving us. And if you see that, as a Christian, you might feel, uh, honestly, you might feel anger, frustration. You, you might feel a sense of panic. It certainly is confusing. We've we got to be careful that that doesn't sit out on our souls and we start feeling this sense of, of, of doom. So if that's not bad enough, you turn the channel and there you can see the war in Ukraine and how tensions around the world make it seem so odd. I mean, not to mention, look, not to mention your own things that you have to deal with. The things in your own home, the things in your own life, some of the pains that you carry. This passage right here that I've just read, this passage is written to people that are inside of a crisis. <clears throat> and the preacher, when he writes to his church, a church that is undergoing significant cultural and religious pressure, he doesn't write to them little words of encouragement. He doesn't write to them ways that they can be better. You see what he does right here? He calls their attention to joyfully trust in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what I want to do today, is to take this passage in the midst of where we live and all the confusion and the junk we have to deal with, and let's, get, let's be done with anger and frustration. And I'm asking you to put your eyes Trust. In fact, we might say it like this. Grace. Grace means trusting in the work of Christ. I want you to trust what God has done for you in Jesus. Let's take this passage and just go through it. The first four verses, you really can say five. Verse five is a transitional verse. The first four verses call us to, to trust Christ, you see, the fulfilling, I want you to trust the fulfilling work of Christ. The fulfilling, if you have to write it down, or just, just see the fulfilling work of Christ in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. You'll see it in there in verse 1. You see that Christ is a better mediator in verse 1. Here you have in verse 1 the very first use of the word priest in the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews will be the person in the New Testament that uses the word priest more than anybody else. And here's the very first time that he uses it, and he puts it on Christ and says he's the high priest. He's setting it up. Notice it with me in verse 1. <clears throat> Look what the writer says in verse 1. Every high priest, here's the standard fare for being a high priest. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. Here's what a priest, here's what a priest does to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here's the first use of the word priest, and he's telling us what a priest does is go between man and God. We need a mediator. God is holy, man is sinful. God will not fellowship with man as he is. Man can't fellowship with God because of his sin. We need a priest. I mean, you can just go to Leviticus and read it. 
From the very beginning, there must be a way for God to meet with man, man to meet with God. You need a priest. All through the Old Testament, you have the imperfect priest, the sacrifices being lifted up, the aroma to God, the blood sacrifice. Something has to die, every bit of it imperfect. And the writer is setting it up to say, Christ is the perfect mediator. God has given us a way that is perfect. It is in the person of Jesus, the work of Christ. And not only that, when you read, you go down to verse 2, he continues to, to describe about a priest. He says that a priest is a sympathetic person. You see it in verse 2? I want you to see that Christ is a better sympathizer. Notice what verse 2 says. He can deal, this is any high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Any high priest in that day of time would, would serve like a pastor does now, being able to deal with the people of the congregation in such a way that he's not shocked to deal gently. That word, see that word in verse 2? Deal gently, the only time you'll see it in the New Testament, it means to not be shocked. And what he's doing, the writer is, he'll use verse 5 and say, now that's what a high priest does. And Christ does it better. There's not anything in your life that you've done or thought or been a part of that will shock God. Our God has given us Christ who lived like you can't and took the punishment for everything that you've done. He's not shocked. He can deal with what you've got. He's a better sympathizer. Christ is a better forgiver. Come down to verse 3. The, the writer outlines what a priest does for sinners. You see it in verse 3? <clears throat> because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. A regular high priest who's just a human, he's also a sinner. He has to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for other people. He needs an outside sacrificial offering. He offers that up for himself and for other people. And what the, pre what the uh, preacher's doing here is letting us see that's what a regular high priest is like. Let me tell you what Christ is like. Every sacrifice ever offered in the temple, ever seen in the Old Testament, every single one of them is pointing to Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. The hope of the gospel is that we can trust the fulfilling work of Christ. Why? Because Christ is a better answer. I'm going to show it to you in verse 4, and let's get into the first part of verse 5. He's a better answer. Do you see it in verse 4? <clears throat> no one takes this honor for himself. So a priest doesn't just show up and say, I want to be a priest. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made, to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. You see that Jesus fulfills every requirement of the high priest. We need someone that is a mediator between us and God, and Jesus is the perfect mediator. The writer is saying to you, do not abandon him. Do not walk away from him. Do not take your eyes off of him. That little church is undergoing persecution. They're in a world that hates them. And the preacher says, 
Don't fight that. Be careful what you get yourself tied up in. What kind of arguments you get tied up in. The preacher says, here, I want you to come and focus on Jesus. Look what Jesus has done for you. That's where you'll find your confidence. That's where you'll find your hope. That's where you'll find your strength. To trust the fulfilling work of Christ. He set it up for us and he brings us forward. It's not the only thing we trust. There's something else. You feel the flavor of it in verse 5. We need to trust the ruling work of Christ. The ruling. I want you to trust the ruling. Some people sitting in this congregation, sometimes I feel it in my heart too, we act like God is not actively in control. We forget that we, we serve a king. Let me show it to you. The, the, the preacher is reminding his people they live in a society, they're being persecuted, maybe by Rome, possibly by uh, zealous Jews. And what he does in verse 5, he quotes Psalm chapter 2. It's probably said in quotes in your Bible. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. He's already quoted it once before in chapter 1. And notice what he says. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I started thinking, what, what is the context of that psalm? Well, if you want to, you can flip back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, let me just read where that psalm comes from. <clears throat> psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Why do the nations rage? Man, doesn't that feel like what we're in? Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. Our Lord holds them in derision and he speaks to them in his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury and here comes his wrath and fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You know what the preacher's doing there? The preacher is liking Jesus to a king. He's already called him a high priest. Now he said he is the high priest king. He'll call him Melchizedek in the, in the next verse. He's telling us that this this priest, Jesus, is, is like no other. And it's something we need to get a hold of. That Jesus Christ is your true ruler. We can be frustrated with a president and mad at a dictator, but we worship a king. And his name is Jesus. What did Paul write? If you're going along with the, uh, the reading plan that we're using here at the church, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, when he speaks of Jesus, he says about Jesus that he is far above every rule. He is above every authority and every power and every dominion. He is above, above every name that is named, not only in this age when Paul lived, but also in the age to come when we live. And God has put everything under his feet and he's given him his as head over all things, he gave him to the church, to us, which is his body. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
You know, you can take, you can walk out of here today when we're done. <clears throat> you can walk out of here today with confidence. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. You've been redeemed by the blood of this one who is not just a high priest, he is also a king. You can trust the ruling work of Christ. We need to trust the ruling work of Christ in your everyday life. The fact that He is taking your life somewhere even when you don't feel like it. You think your wheels are spinning and you're stuck in the mud. You are not. Our God has a good purpose and that purpose has to do with your life honoring His name. You can trust the ruling work of of Christ. But that's not all you can trust. You just keep pressing on this passage. Just keep massaging it with me. You'll find it there in verse 6. You can trust the enduring endurance, the enduring work of Christ. Let me show it to you there in uh, verse 6. Melchizedek pops up for the first time <clears throat> right there in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. As he says in another place, and he's quoting the Psalms, Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, <clears throat> some of you that like to study, you've been, I mean, you've been waiting to get to Melchizedek. What is that preacher going to say about Melchizedek? I'm not saying anything today. Well, because it comes up again in, verse, in uh, chapter 7. There's this long passage in chapter 7 that deals with Melchizedek. Let me just say a couple of things about Melchizedek. About Melchizedek. He's mentioned again in verse 10 that he is designated by God, Jesus is designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we'll deal with it more in chapter 7. Melchizedek is a figure that shows up in Genesis. One place shows up in Psalm 110 verse 4, the second place. We don't hear from, from him again until Hebrews. And the writer of Hebrews knows the Bible so well, he reaches back to this figure in Genesis and Psalm 110, Melchizedek. And he's saying, Christ is not a priest like Aaron. It's, it's not what he's like. These people would be familiar with the Aaronic priesthood. It's what Judaism is. It's what they've seen their whole lives. And the preacher says, now you need to get your eyes off that one. The priest I'm talking about is like that one that that watery figure in the Old Testament. That this kind, in the order of, means this kind of priest, like Melchizedek. He has no predecessor. He has no successor. He is only one. Not another like him. Put your eyes on this high priest, Jesus. The one that, that endures forever. You don't know where he's from you don't know where he's going to be because he is the forever one not only that when you think about jesus and his strength you you need to be reminded that he holds your life securely brothers and sisters i want you to take joy in the fact that god has you in his hands that jesus has put you there that jesus sees you as a gift given by the father to the son he said, what are you talking about? <clears throat> well, let me, let me just read something to you. The book of John is a great, it's a great gospel to go to. John chapter 10. Listen to the words of Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, 29, and 30. This is what Jesus says. <clears throat> My sheep 
My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Eternal security. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, you ever thought of yourself as a gift from God the Father to God the My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, there is great security in being in Christ. You are held in the hand of Jesus who is held in the hand of God the Father who will never, there's not another person that can break that grip. That's where you're held. There's there is great security when we trust in grace. God's grace gives us great security. There's nothing you did to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation because it wasn't yours to earn or to lose. It was given to you by God. God gives it, and the way Jesus has described, not only is it given to us by God, we were given by God to Jesus. What a great picture. You know what that means? You can walk out of here and, and, and trust. You can trust that God has you in his hand. Trust that God is working in your life. Trust that God has bought you by the blood of Jesus and cares for you and loves you, a God of affection. You can walk out of here without doubt. It's, it's tough to live your life if, you, if you're doubting your salvation all the time. Let me just take you... Take you to the scripture. Don't trust your feelings. Trust what anybody has said to you. Don't trust if you've written it down somewhere. What does the Bible say? If you are in Christ, you are secure. And if you keep doubting that, we find ourselves in sin. Not, not only that, <clears throat> there ought to be this real sense in your heart that you are committed you are committed to what you know the Bible says about what it means to be a Christian, you're committed to grow in Christ. My goodness, don't you want to grow? I want you to trust the great grace of God, the, the work of Christ, the enduring work of Christ. Let me, let me show you something else. Just come down the page with me and look, look at the description of verse 7. I want you to trust the interceding, the interceding work of Christ. Now it gets real. Verse 7 and 8 when I was studying it, to me, were the most moving in this passage. Here in verse 7, notice what the preacher says. <clears throat> in the days of his flesh, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Let's work backwards in that passage. Pass. Let's just work backwards. Jesus, that word reverence, keep looking at verse 7. That word reverence gives us this, this awe, this understanding of who God the Father is. Jesus, the Holy One, has the purest understanding of who God the Father is. And there with that, uh, that, that awe, that, that fear, that understanding of majesty, he had it in fullness. And because of that, when he prayed, his prayers are heard. 
God could save him from death, and the resurrection is proof. We worship on a Sunday. Why? Because God raised him from the dead and heard his prayers. Okay, keep working, keep working through it. And you get and find him in the days of his flesh, verse 7 tells us. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries. You know what we think of immediately? We think of the Garden of Gethsemane. If you have a study Bible, it probably says that down there. <clears throat> but don't forget, what it says in verse 7 is, in the days of his flesh, 33 years, we see him praying. There at his baptism, asking God, praying there at his baptism. Mark chapter 1 tells us that he rose up early in the morning, went outside to a solitary place while it was still dark and prayed. Luke chapter 5 says he goes out into desolate places and prays. We find out in Luke chapter 6 that he prayed all night long before he chose the disciples. John chapter 6, 5,000 people, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays before he feeds them. Puts his hand on a, on a deaf mute, unstops his ears, and the boy starts talking, prays before he does that. Stands at the grave of Lazarus, tears coming down his eyes, prays. John chapter 17, we find him there with the high priestly prayer, praying for you. And then we go to the garden. Matthew and Mark and Luke give us pictures. I think that's what he's talking about here. Loud cries. The garden of Gethsemane when he, garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to take the cup, Father, take the cup, not my will, but your will. God answered that. When he said to his friends, my, 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 my heart is broken. I'm feel sorrow that's like death. Luke says he sweat great drops of blood. We find out in the Gospels that the angels came and ministered to him there in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. But that's not the only, that's not the only place he prayed. He goes to the cross, and on the cross, you know the cries. This is where Stephen learned it. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Later in that day, what has been called the cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? The, the prayer, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and here is this one, Jesus, that the Bible presents him as our great intercessor. The Bible says that he now ever lives to make intercession our mediator in heaven, pleading his blood to the Father that covers our sins. Look, I want you to trust in the interceding work of Christ. You feel the pressure of life and everything coming in around you? You look to the one who is there for you. Not only that, come down to verse 8. <clears throat> there in verse 8, I want you to trust the the suffering work of Christ. Suffering work of Christ in verse 8. Verse 8 is difficult. It's a difficult verse for me. <clears throat> the writer says of Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So let's take it by pieces. Although he was a son, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, he is perfect. 
This doesn't take away from his perfection. He learned obedience. That word learn, he experienced. He lived. And he learned obedience. Verse 8, how did he learn it? It came through suffering. For every person here that's ever suffered, you, you, you need to circle this verse. It's what the old, uh, the old Puritans used to call the passive obedience of Christ. <clears throat> the active obedience of Christ is him fulfilling the entire law that's actively living it out. The passive obedience of Christ was understood to be that which he suffered, that Jesus suffered. Brothers and sisters, you need to come here and drink. We're just saying, the man of sorrows, suffering servant. How did he suffer? The Bible tells us all through the Gospels, how did he suffer? There in the wilderness being tempted in ways that you and I cannot imagine. Temptation. There is fully God, him growing up as a child and an adolescent, a young single, suffer. Presumably, at the death of a parent, we, we, see, we see Mary, but his earthly father, Joseph, we don't hear any more about him, and most believe he just died. He had to walk through that, walk his mother through that. We, we find him there at the death of uh, one of his friends, Lazarus. Go and read the story. Look at him weeping there. Read the story of Jesus. He suffered through ridicule. Persecution? Look, Jesus, go read the Gospels. He's lied about, lied to, shunned by his family. His closest friends misunderstood him. Look, remember the story of Peter? Forsaken by his, or three people close to him, James, John, Peter. Forsaken by one of his best friends. Betrayed by Judas. Go there to the end of the Gospels and watch him being physically beaten now, being physically beaten. Suffered. Look at him being humiliated, stripped completely naked in front of everyone while he's being beaten and hung on the cross, completely humiliated. Think of the physical pain he endured, suffered on the cross. Think of the weight. I mean, you've had guilt for your sin. Think of the weight of all the sin for every sinner that will ever be saved. Think of the wrath of God on Jesus. The, the, the preacher's holding him up saying, he suffered for you. You can come to this one that you can trust him. Suffered everything you ever suffered. And the suffering work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that you can be brought to God the Father. This morning, you ought to feel loved. You ought to feel valued. You ought to feel relieved. Your heart should be restored. You should sense the forgiveness of God. You, you need to walk in this healing that He provides. Your soul should be encouraged. Because of the suffering work of Jesus. I'll just close with this one last one. We need to trust the saving, the saving work of Christ. Don't you love verse 9? The preacher says, and being made perfect, 
He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Salvation is secured in Jesus. His experience perfectly as a human. His experience as a human perfectly. He had to be a human. It is secured by Jesus. Salvation is seen in obedience. That salvation is given to all who obey him, verse 9. Do you see how close? The two fraternal twins, they don't look alike, but grace and obedience. They go together. Salvation in your life is seen in obedience. Salvation stands the test. Verse 9 says that he saves them forever. Eternal salvation. Brothers and sisters, we live in a terrible, broken world. It is the world where God has put us. We don't live here by ourselves. We, we live under the lordship of Jesus, saved by grace. It means that you need to be trusting the finished work of Jesus. Do you, do you trust? Do you trust the fulfilling work of Christ? Do you trust the ruling work of Christ in your life? That he's sovereign and in active control. Do you entrust the enduring work of Christ? There is no predecessor, there is no successor, there is only Jesus. There is only the I am. Do you, do you trust the interceding work of Christ on earth in, in his flesh? He offered up loud cries. Now as Lord, he sits at the right hand of God, the Father interceding on your behalf. Do you trust the suffering? Some of you have suffered. Look to the one who suffered even more. His suffering redeems every bit of yours. You trust the saving work of Christ. Jesus is the source and obedience is the evidence. Jesus is the giver. We are the receivers and we live it out in a life of obedience. Now I'm closing it down today, but as I do, I want you to walk out of here trusting in the good grace of God given to us in Jesus. You join me as we pray together with your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. I'd like for you to focus, focus on what you've experienced. Maybe you're tempted, maybe you're suffering, maybe you're angry. Now see Jesus experiencing it more for you. This morning as we pray, I just want to invite any of you that would like to come and pray and ask God to help you. You just come and kneel here and pray as we sing. It's our last worship song. Or if you'd like to talk to a pastor, you'll, you'll notice even now our pastors are down on the front pew. They are there just to talk to you and pray with you and maybe to have a longer conversation so that you might find out what does it mean to have this life in Christ. As we close this morning, sing, we'll invite you to come. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus, and I pray that it would be real for your people and our hearts would be encouraged. Help us now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand please and we sing together?